This morning's sermon text comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Let's pray together. Father, that song we just sang is a very beautiful, precious, sweet, expression of the longings of many hearts in this room. We want to serve each other. We want to love each other. We want to be the Christ light for each other. So, Lord, I pray very practically that the upshot of this service would be that people would get into small groups where they can do that. And to that end, I pray that my word would be faithful to the scriptures and that there would be an anointing upon me for the delivery of it. That there would be humility and brokenness before you. That there would be courage in the spirit. And that there would be hearts and minds suited to hear and to act. So glorify yourself, Father, and your Son now over your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to make a leap now from Romans 8, 1, where we were a couple of weeks ago in our Through the Romans series. To chapter 12, verse 5. And it's not a very long leap, as you will see shortly. Let's read these two verses. Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. So the, the connection between 8, 1 and 12, 5 is the phrase, in Christ. So we read in 12.5, so we who are many are one body in Christ. So no condemnation in Christ, one body 
in Christ and individually members one of another. So let's focus on verse 5. What does it mean? So we who are many are one body. The church is to be pictured like a human body. Arms, legs, hands, feet, ears, eyes, nose, throat. Like a body. And we are members of one body. Members, meaning this is a member. Hand is a member of the body. So we who are many are one body. So the first point in verse 5 is unity in diversity. One body, many members. Many in one. But the main point, I think, is... Deeper than that, more significant than that, and we get it by reading the rest of the verse. It says, and individually members one of another. Now that takes us further. Our unity is not simply that we belong to some corporate whole or corporate reality called a body. The point here is the different parts belong to each other. The parts of the body are not just a part of a whole. It says they are a part of each other. Let's just make sure we don't read over that too lightly. Individually, members one of another. So to picture that, what that is saying more than members of one thing, namely be members of each other, uh, Picture my left shoulder shot with a bullet and my right hand. So the the left shoulder gets shot. Now my right hand immediately, instinctively, with no long chain of reasoning to justify it, goes to my left shoulder. Why? It's not simply because they, they both happen to belong to one thing. It's this hand is somehow wired to take that personally and to do something about it quickly. There's a really close thing between a shoulder and a hand that you don't think about. It's just there to stop the blood or to just say, I'm for you, I'm with you, this hurts. And so, with all the other kinds of analogies that you can think about, you're... you're you're walking through the living room at night, it's dark, it's raining, you shut the window, and you kick the leg of the coffee table with your little toe, full force, and all the parts of your body join in the ministry. <laughs> the back muscles, the torso muscles, the leg muscles, the eyes, the voice. Nobody says, how come your eyes are crying? It's your toe that hurts. They don't. Think like that. Reach for it. Or, heard about this ball player that got his eye socket broken with one of those 90 mile an hour pitches this past week. You see, when your eyes see a ball coming at your head at 90 miles an hour, there's no long conversation between the eye and other parts of the body to persuade them. This relates to you. 
they just go like this. And all the leg muscles join in, the back muscles join in, every muscle joins in. Get that head out of the way. Of course I'm not the head. Or am I not? This, head, this text seems to say, you're part of the head. Individually members of one another. There's something really deep there that we need to get hold of. Individually members of one another. Now, the way that the different parts of this body help each other is unfolded in terms of spiritual gifts in verse 6 to 8. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In other words, the benefits that flow from hand to shoulder or foot to shoulder or adrenal gland to shoulder or brain to shoulder, all those ways of taking care of this wounded shoulder are different. And the difference of the way a person, a member of the church or of the body channels help to the wounded member differs, it says, according to the grace given to us. Gifts shape and determine the form or the way you help people. Seven kinds of gifts are mentioned here. And the remarkable thing about them, let me mention them first. Prophecy, you see it in there. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. The amazing thing about that list is that four of them at least are virtues that every Christian must have. To be obedient. Service. Paul says in Galatians 5.13 to everybody. Serve one another in love. Exhortation. Hebrews 3.13 commands every Christian. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Giving. Ephesians 4.28. Paul says share with him who has need. Same word. As here, metadidomai. And mercy, Jesus said to everybody, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So mercy, giving, exhortation, and service are called gifts in this text. Channels, forms, ways that body parts minister to other body parts. And other parts of the Bible, these four at least, are said to be something you got to have. That's a virtue that comes with the terrain of Christianity. Do it. Now, what do we learn from this? That he would call gifts something that, why do you call those a gift? I mean, we all got to do that. That not that misleading to call that a gift? Like say, you got the gift of mercy, so uh, I don't, I don't, so I don't have to treat you mercifully. That's dangerous talk, it seems like. Or, you got the gift of giving, I don't. You finish this education for exaltation thing. So what's going on here? That these virtues, these fruits of the Holy Spirit would be called gifts. Well, here's the first thing I learned from that. 
Spiritual gifts are not tidy categories. Distinct from each other. You can't distinguish mercy and giving and mercy and serving. You serve somebody, you're merciful. If you're merciful, you serve them. These are overlapping realities. Spiritual gifts are not tidy boxes. We should get the box mentality out of our mind when we're trying to live for other people. That's the mindset. Live for other people. Lay down your life. Be there for people. And what what form that takes are called gifts. Because you're so different from everybody else. You won't serve like everybody else unless you're just trying to copycat or be uh, imitating somebody that you're not. If you just love people like you are, then you'll find your gift. That, that'll be it. Gifts, notice, notice this key word. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, what that means is God pours out grace on a small group, on a church, on a family, on an individual. And we absorb and live in the power of this grace and bend it from vertical to horizontal and display it through Gifts. Or, maybe better to say, the way we display it happens to turn out to be our gift. If you're really devoted to gracing people with Jesus, really devoted to taking everything He is for you and making it that or something better for others, you find your gift. It's no... Oh, let's check this box here. Am I in this box or this box? Or got a foot in this box? Don't think that way. Think love. Think service. Think laying down your life. Think the whole thing. I, I sometimes think people think God's uh, color monitor is really monochrome. I think he has about 256 colors in his uh, palette. And he mixes them. To infinite varieties of grace. And he pours them down on weird people, like you and me. And out like a prism, refracted, changing the image now from paint to light. It gets refracted differently through different people. And those refractions are your gifts. And if you feel like, oh, I don't know what my gifts are. Okay, how do you find your gift? The problem is probably not that you haven't read the right list of boxes or pegged it. The problem is you're just not giving your life away. You're not trying. You're not spending any time just trying to help people. Find a need and need it. And you know what the big needs are. And then you'll discover what you're good at and what blesses people with your life. You try to teach, nobody gets blessed. You try to do merciful, practical things, they get blessed out of their socks. It may sound strange to us that God would do things this way, but doesn't this text also imply this list of gifts and these four that are virtues that God unusually, or let's say he graces people with an unusual tender-hearted disposition? There are some people that are graced with an unusually tender-hearted disposition. 
Others are graced with unusual delight in lavish generosity. Others are graced with unusually forceful or bold bent towards exhortation. Others are graced with extraordinary servant hearts. There are people in this church that I'll try to call them when somebody's sick or in some need. They've already visited them twice. They're always there. I wonder, how does she have such a network? How does she know? And the answer is, her antennas are up everywhere. She's got this incredible gift, and I don't mean just one person. This incredible gift to just smell need, and she's there. People are wired that way. Others just have to reason that one ought to do this. So stop doing what you're doing and help. And we ought to, and that's a good thing, but it's different than what other people have. So I don't think Paul is saying anything wrong here. I think he's pointing out all these things are fluid. The grace comes down. I prayed with one person after the first service in that regard about some critical need this week in their lives. And uh, I said, you know, one of the implications of what I said about gifts is that God gives them when he pleases, in what proportion he pleases, to whom he pleases. And so let's just ask God this week for a gift. A gift. You say, well, I don't have that gift. Well, how do you know? We're talking about this week. We're talking about this week for this crisis. And then maybe it's gone. And what I mean by that, that way of thinking, is that the Spirit of God is free and grace falls down on this person and they find welling up within them resources to love in a way that they're not constitutionally designed to love. And they meet the need, they rise to the challenge of the crisis. And after that, they look back and say, was that me? How did that happen? And then they don't feel that way anymore. They feel like their old crabby self again. Gifts, gifts are like that. Some stay more or less, some go, they go and come. Don't, don't be static and box oriented in your view of gifts. If you need a gift of generosity to finish your pledge, ask for it. And then maybe you'll go away again. Or may not. Now, back up and let's do a little application here. At Bethlehem, Right now and for the last umpteen years, we believe that this stuff I've just talked about here, hands, shoulder, gifts, is just a lot of pie in the sky. Unless you are in relationships, personal, regularly nurtured, growing Relationships. The last 15 minutes of this sermon it just amounts to a big pie in the sky theory if you don't have relationships where it can happen. Which is one of the big reasons why we're so committed to this little red book and more.
that you would find one of these small groups, or if you don't find one that's in your place doing it in a way that will meet your need, create one. Talk to David how to get trained and be folded into the the system. So it's very important to us to to push you by the Spirit and the Word into relationships. And I know that's not easy. I prayed with another person after the first service who just was very candid with me, with tears in his eyes, said, you do not know how hard that is for me. He said, just this past week, I stood outside a meeting. It wasn't even a small group meeting where you're supposed to pray with each other, share. And for ten minutes, I tried to get up the courage just to walk into the group. So I know there are all kinds of obstacles like that. Deeply rooted family obstacles, personality obstacles, horrible experience in small group obstacles, etc. For why a thousand of you aren't in small groups. And another thousand probably are or will be. So I'm really preaching and praying to overcome as many of those obstacles as I can. So let me lay a foundation in the last few minutes by showing you the link, the leap that I made between 8.1, Romans 8.1 and Romans 12.5. I said it was not a big leap because it's linked by the phrase in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to make sure you hear a foundation for small group ministry that is not therapeutic or psychological or organizational. Okay, it's biblical, it's supernatural, it's divine, it's Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated. It has to do with the gospel. That's the foundation. Well, what is it? The way to get at it is to take the little phrase, in Christ, and say, what happens when I, by faith, Trust Jesus and am thus united to Christ. What happens? And the answer is three things, and they build on each other. Two of them we spent three years on. One of them I'm dealing with today. If you want the big theological words that rhyme, justification, sanctification, and unification are the words. But let's talk about the realities for a minute. When you put your faith in Jesus, and some of you should do that right now as I'm talking, for the first time. Others of you need to renew it day by day. We all do. So when we put our faith in Jesus decisively, turn to him as Savior, Lord, treasure of our lives, what happens is that the Holy Spirit in that grafts us to Christ, unites us with Christ. The first experience of being united with Christ is not an experience. It's a declaration by God Almighty, the judge of the universe, not guilty. Any longer over your head. No condemnation. So Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an instantaneous declaration. It isn't a transformation. It isn't an offer. It is an authoritative word from the mouth of the judge. Your judgment is passed. You died with Jesus. He bore your sin. He is your pardon. And he is your righteousness. Not guilty. And from then on, the 
The face you see is a father's face in heaven, not the face of a condemning judge. That's massively important in small group ministry. If we don't come together as forgiven, accepted, loved, justified, no condemnation kind of people, you know what we're going to do? We're going to beat each other up. We're going to slander others. We're going to gossip. We're going to drag each other down. It isn't going to fly. So that's foundation number one. It is massively important that we understand justification by faith alone. The second one is sanctification, and it comes from Romans 7, 4. It goes like this. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So when you were united to Christ by faith, you died to the law. The law condemns you no longer. But notice what else happens. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So now we're back into in Christ, unity with Christ, joined to another, the living Christ. Why? In order that we might bear fruit for God. Now that's the practical transformation. That's very different from justification, and it starts to happen as soon as you're in Christ. And it is a process. Justification is a punctiliar declaration over your life. It never gets any better. Ever. Can't improve on not guilty. You can't improve on the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you. It doesn't get any better. It comes all at once, and the whole thing is there. You will never be less guilty than you presently are in Christ before the Father. But you can get better. (laughs) Sanctification has a lot of work to do on us. And the Holy Spirit comes in and He starts to grind away at the edges and sanctify and purify and refine. And it takes a lot of pain and it takes a lot of stumbling and failure. And He tries to make us more like Jesus. That's called bearing fruit. And it isn't you, it's the Spirit... It's what Romans 12.5 calls grace. According to the grace measured to you. So the second foundation of small groups is sanctification. We've got to be a people who when we come to the small groups, we come broken, we come transparent, we come needy. But we don't come without power. We don't come without the Holy Spirit. And our graces may be rising and falling and some of us are low and others are high and we minister the light of Jesus to each other and we call forth by the word more power. We pray for each other. We pray for healing. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for marriages. We pray for our wayward kids. We just pray. We get all over each other. We love each other back to where we need to be. Sanctification is not just an individual process in the Bible. It is a corporate process. And it's foundational for small groups. And the third thing that happens in Christ is this unity. Verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ. So here's, here's my foundational statement. Biblical small groups, as we conceive them at least, and I think it's biblical, biblical small groups are not a therapeutic method. Biblical small groups are not a psychological strategy. Biblical small groups are not an organizational technique. They're not the same as support groups in a hospital. They're not the same as AA. 
They're not the same as recovery groups. There are overlapping truths and realities, no doubt. But fundamentally, biblical small groups are rooted in justification by faith alone in the risen and glorious crucified King Jesus Christ, receiving His Spirit, ministering His light and power, and if He's not there, it's not Christian and ultimately not healing. To get off drugs and go to hell is small comfort. To get your marriage fixed and die without Jesus is small healing. Jesus heals marriages. Jesus gets people off drugs. Jesus heals every manner of disorder. Jesus is mighty beyond all therapeutic strategies. But if we try to imitate those strategies and leave him out, we die forever. So, what's unique about biblical small groups is that they are Christ-saturated, Christ-built, Christ-exalting. And the, what we bring to each other is the power of Christ and the good news of Christ and the prayers in the name of Christ and the arms of Christ, the body of Christ visible and touching. It is very Christ-exalting and Christ-centered what we're about here. Now, last summer, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, and I actually was thinking through this sermon, believe it or not. I knew this, this always comes, once a year this sermon comes on small groups. And I was reading a book called Flags of Our Fathers by James Bradley about the history of Iwo Jima, the Battle of Iwo Jima. It had a tremendous impact on me. Iwo Jima is a little island, eight miles square, about 600 miles south of Tokyo. It had two strategic airstrips on it toward the end of World War II. February 19, 1945, the command went down, take the island, whatever it costs. 22,000 Japanese on the island. Invisible, underground with their machine guns and their mortars. And uh, 800 ships converged on this little teeny island. Tens of thousands of Marines. And that morning of the 19th, most of them 18 and 19 years old, ran ashore. The Marines fought for 43 months in the Pacific theater during World War II. Almost three years. Of all the losses that they sustained, a third of them happened in one month on Iwo Jima. We took the island 30 days and left behind 6,800 graves. My son's age, Barnabas' age. No funerals at home. We buried him with bulldozers. There were so many. I was reading this, and I didn't know what was coming on September 11, but I knew this, one of the biggest problems in my church, the American Evangelical Church, is a peacetime mindset and mentality toward the world. We don't 
feel like we're in a war and therefore we don't pray like we're in a war. We don't live like we're in a war. We don't tremble like we're in a war. We don't weep like we're in a war. Everything is peacetime in America, which makes this all the more relevant today so you can taste and feel it. It's not peacetime. And I don't mean about what happened on September 11. I mean Satan is a very powerful enemy and he hijacks every good purpose and every good plan you ever have trying to fight into somebody's face and ruin a marriage or ruin a school or ruin a church or ruin your life. And our indwelling sin and our flesh are like welcoming, ready, covert, complicitous bases of operation where he can take up his place and do his damage. And if we don't feel the magnitude of this war that we're in and everybody is in, we'll just go about our lives trying to maximize our resources on this earth. And when you read stories about the battle of Iwo Jima and others, you just feel like maybe that's why Paul and others in the New Testament used the imagery of we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That really is a battle and we really should be trembling the way those boys were trembling in the Amtraks as they came to the beach. Oh, how we need a wartime mindset in these days. And we have been helped mightily to get one. And when I talk about we need vigilance and we need discipline and we need the use of spiritual weaponry, I don't mean bombs and bullets and grenades and tanks, missiles. I mean the word of the cross and prayer and love and readiness to lay down our lives to complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of those who will not just lose their bodies but their everlasting souls forever. Isn't it amazing, and I include myself in this now, that we can watch people falling to their death And be so shocked and so hurt and so grieved and so overwhelmed, we can hardly eat and we can hardly stand it. And we don't feel that for the people who day after day pass into eternity without a Savior and will suffer way worse than that, not once, but forever. You see how sick we are with peace? Sick with pleasures, sick with peacetime. We need a wartime mindset. So I asked myself as I was reading this book, how'd the Marines do that? The second battalion sent 1,688 boys ashore that morning. 1,511 died. 177 of them left the island, and of those 177, 91 
were injured. And so I ask, what kept these kids going? A lot of you are in this room, all right? 18 to 20, 21. That's, that's the age of these kids. What kept these guys going into the face of that kind of machine gun fire and mortar? When they saw their, right in front of them, the guys would jump off and drown because it was too deep. And then others would go and step on them and keep going. What? Now, there's no one answer to that. But you know the answer this book gives over and over again in interviews with veterans? Those are my buddies, and they need me. They're my buddies. I can't go back. They're my buddies. So the the writer said, James Bradley wrote the book, said, these boys would fight to death for one another. And that motive made them invincible. So here's my concluding word. Oh, that all of our small groups at Bethlehem would be invincible platoons of faith and hope and love and sacrifice and righteousness for the sake of the neighborhoods and for the sake of the nations. Oh, that the manifold grace of God vertically would be laid hold of and bent out with a radical devotion to one another that would be unlike anything the world had known. Oh, that the next time a calamity strikes America of that magnitude, perhaps closer to home, every suffering saint at Bethlehem who's lost somebody or lost a leg would be immediately surrounded by 10 or 12 people or families to say, we're with you, we're for you, and you cry with them and you sit with them and you do whatever has to be done to get them through the dark night of their body and their soul. Oh, that no one would be alone at a time like that. That would be so foreign to in Christ. I've been at Bethlehem 21 years. And as I prepared this message, it was so easy for me to stop over and over again and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't deserve 1980. When I got called to this church, I did not deserve this gift. I didn't deserve the dozens of people who I know intimately and the several hundred I know less intimately and the thousand I hardly know at all and yet grace me with their ears here. I didn't deserve this and I wouldn't give or take any amount of money for it. Relationships that have emerged in my life through this 21-year investment in a local church are precious beyond anything besides Jesus to me. And I had my family here. They are part of that. It's great to raise kids at Bethlehem. And then the thought came to me, and what a great place and people 
from which to launch a radical life. <laughs> whether it's away or whether it's in the city or in the neighborhood. What a great people What a great web, what a great network, what a great fabric from which to launch a radical life. These people will understand my failures. These people will have me back. These people will tend to my wounds. This is a great place from which to launch a radical life. So I just plead with you, for your soul and for your God and for the good of others, get in a small group. Get in a small group. Let me close with another illustration, just very briefly. I'm going to take a minute because this moved me so deeply. The medics on the battlefield were often among those who were most endangered. And uh, one of them went out with a man, and the man put his head up above the bunker, got a bullet right through the Adam's apple. And the medic uh, went in there with his clamps, trying to, to clamp off the artery, and he couldn't get it. He said, I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and it was so slippery. And as the blood started to pump less and less, this soldier was looking right into his eyes, just looking right into the medic's eyes, as the blood stopped pumping. And just as he was ready to die, he put his hand on the medic and didn't say anything because he couldn't talk, as if to say, it's okay, it's okay. I'll tell you, that scene, and many like it, um, brought me to tears often during the summer, and they caused me to think about what it would be like to die at Bethlehem. And there's lots of you, and I thank God for you, who would come to my hospital room, and I would be there maybe on a respirator, or I don't know what the last stages of whatever it will be will be, and uh, you will fight for me. You'll try to get a hold of the artery. You'll try to get a hold of unbelief and squeeze it off. You'll fight for my faith. You'll fight for my hope. You'll fight for my body and my life. And as I take my last breath, I will, I hope, put out my hand onto your hand and say, It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. And what will transpire eye to eye? In those moments, you can't estimate the value of that. And you want that. And some of you don't have it. You don't have those kinds of relationships. Stay in a local church long enough. Weave yourself into the lives of other people. People will be there for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace and grace for all the gifts that we need from each other. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.